At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn how to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. Well, if you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 14 this morning. That's, again, where we're at. We're in this series called The Follower's Travel uh, Trail Guide. We're following Jesus as he gives his farewell discourse, his last message to his disciples, preparing them and equipping them as he heads to the cross. I think Jesus' tactics, his, his ways of going about things, at many times are very unusual. They're very, very surprising. Catch what he says here in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he says this to his disciples, who if, if, if we're understanding the situation and the scenario rightly, their hearts are troubled. They are just in the moment of, of being with Jesus in this, in this upper room setting, this final Passover meal, and there can be nothing but disturbed, troubled hearts among them. I, I've done my... Uh, share of counseling as a pastor over the uh, years, sitting with people in various situations with troubled hearts in my office or, or my home talking about what's going on. And as I've sat with these people that are the disturbed and anxious and fearful and distressed, if I were to say to them, hey, just don't, don't have a troubled heart, I don't think that would fly real well. And if that's just what I said, you know, like, pastor, I'm just really anxious about this. I said, you know what? Don't, don't have a troubled heart. Be at peace. Have a good day. Like if I said that, that probably would not land super well. It would probably be true, but I, I, I don't think you'd be looking for more in that. And yet here Jesus is with his disciples in this upper room. They have troubled hearts. Uh, let me just show you why. Jesus has, has declared that his hour has come. He's told them that he is departing. He's departing to his father. And he said to his disciples, where I go, you cannot come. Effectively saying, I'm leaving you behind. If you've been with Jesus for three and a half years, if, you, if you've trusted him as, as the Lord, as the Messiah, if you confess that to him and he says, now I'm leaving, you're stuck behind, okay, troubled heart, just right there, right out of the gate. And then he says, among the 12, the closest ones, if you were one of those 12, one of the closest of his followers, his disciples, is going to betray him. And you're like, who is that? Could it be me? Could it be that guy? I don't know. Reason number two, to have a troubled heart. You're just, the, the, the tension, the anxiety is just, it's just mounting. And then the leader of your, of your crew. I mean, the, the, the one disciple that's just heads and shoulders above the rest, Peter. Jesus looks at him in the face and says, hey, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times before the day is over. That guy, like if he can't win, if he can't be successful in following Jesus, can I? Oh my goodness. Reason for troubled heart number three. So we get to this point in John's gospel here and in, in this farewell discourse, and Jesus says to all of his disciples who have very troubled hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it just, wow, how, how do you get there? The question we should ask about this passage and what Jesus says is, is on what basis can he say, let not your hearts be troubled? 
I mean, what is, the, what is the reason that a disciple of Jesus, who has every reason to be afraid, every reason to be anxious, every reason to have a disturbed heart, what is the basis by which they can stay, stand and say, okay, I won't have a troubled heart? Well, Jesus here gives them that very answer. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He commands them right out of who he is, because of who God is, and because Jesus is fully God, he says to them, your heart can be at peace. While you're troubled about many things in this world, troubled about the things I say, Jesus says, if you believe in God and you believe in me, your hearts can be at peace. Now, Jesus doesn't just say this for his disciples 2,000 years ago. This is Holy Scripture written for us today. These words are for you and for me. Anybody here who's got a troubled heart, anybody here who's disturbed, who's, who's lacking peace, maybe you're just anxious today and you're wrestling with things. What Jesus says, and if Jesus were here in the room with us in this moment, which I believe he is through his word, if he was to address our anxiety and our fear and our hearts that are churning with all that is going on in the world, the economics and politics and all of the things and climate and everything that's going on in this world, Jesus would look at us and he'd say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So I'm going to walk with Jesus here and I'm just going to follow what he says and I'm going to commend to you this morning, I'm going to, I'm going to call you this morning to believe Jesus, to believe in Jesus to, to put your faith, to, to the basis for you and I to have a, a steady, stable, untroubled heart is outside of us, but it's in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to call you this morning, challenge you to believe in Christ. The peace we need for our hearts now more than ever is a confident, anchored, unwavering trust in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, now you might be wondering as Jesus' disciples were, how will faith in Jesus settle our troubled hearts? How will believing in Jesus answer the, the, the churning within us? Allison and I were walking our dog last night, uh, as we usually do, and she asked me this morning, she asked me, said, Dad, what's the, what's the sermon about today? And I said, well, it's about believing Jesus. And her response was, well, that's rather general, Dad. Right? Okay, fair enough. It is. Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, believe in me, and then bolt out the door into the darkness off to do what he's about to do. Jesus, in his love, gives his disciples and us today specific reasons to believe in him and to trust him. He gives us specific reasons that will focus our faith. So it's, it's more than just saying believe in Jesus. He gives concrete reasoning, concrete realities for us to look at and say, here's what you should believe about me. Here's what you should think. And in verses 1 through 14 this morning, I want to draw out three of those specific reasons so that we should trust Jesus so our hearts will not be troubled. So when you do come to that moment where you are anxious, where you are troubled-hearted, I want you to believe Jesus and what he says about who he is and what he's going to do so that your heart will be at peace. That's my aim this morning. I want you to take up these realities to give firm footing to your faith. So here's the first thing. First of all, believe Jesus will bring us to the Father. Believe Jesus will bring us to the Father. 
Now, now Jesus begins by indicating something about where he is going. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, Jesus here is speaking about where he's going, his father's house, his father's dwelling place. The Greek word there could be house or dwelling place. It may have the idea of, of a temple where God's presence is, where the father stands and exists. He says, in my father's house, then he gives another uh, place of location, are many rooms. Now, if you come from an old King James Version background, you would say, well, that's mansions. Don't think of heaven, don't think of where Jesus' father is as like individual homes and mansions that one day we're just going to get to occupy by ourselves. No, think of one place, one temple, if you will, with many various rooms. It's, it's big, it's encompassing, it's a spacious house, plenty of space, plenty of room. To, to riff on the old Audio Adrenaline song, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. And yes, there will be football there. Big place. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, it's spacious, plenty for you. And he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare, and here's another word about location, a place for you. Jesus says, I'm going to my Father, to where he is, to where he dwells, to prepare and to make ready that place for you to be with him, for you to stand with him, for you and me to be together. And he says, if it were not so, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, look at the promise here, Jesus saying, Jesus saying, I'm going, I'm departing to my Father and to his place, and I'm going to prepare that so that you can be with him and me forever. Saying to them, he's going to give them and to give us life with him forever and ever. This is a beautiful promise, not just for his disciples in the upper room, but for us today as well. Jesus has gone ahead of us so that we may forever be with him. If your concept of heaven is eternal bliss and joy and all the pleasures and delights of the world and everything that you would love and want and hope for, without God, you don't have heaven. The reality of heaven, the reality of where Jesus is going to prepare a place is a reality of relationship. It is to be a place for you and I to be together with him forever because he is the one who is life. So Jesus says he's promising this eternal, forever, never, ever, ever ending home and presence with him in his father's house. And he tells his disciples, you know the way where I'm going. Now this confuses them. They are thinking physically. They are thinking geographically, spatially. They pulled out their iPhones and they started putting in like heaven GPS coordinates. They're trying to find father's house on the map and it's pulling up nothing. They don't know where he's going. In fact, this is what Thomas says in verse 5. He says, Lord, do, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I mean, it's not, no map has this on it. It's not showing up. I don't know the route to walk to get there. I don't, I don't know the highway to take to get to it. Do we know the way? Jesus makes a profound statement in verse 6. He says, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Getting to heaven, 
Being with the Father is not about finding a destination or a location on a map or building a rocket ship to fly up into outer space to find heaven. It's about Christ. Jesus himself is the way to the Father. And as he says that, he's saying that he himself is the means by which we find the truth. We don't know what is true. We don't have what is reality apart from Christ himself. And furthermore, Jesus says that he is the way. He himself is the means by which we come to life. There is no true life apart from Christ and his life in us and for us. And so he says, I am the way and I am the truth. I give you reality and I am the life. I I grant to you life. No one comes to the Father. No one stands in his presence. No one enjoys the dwelling place with him forever apart from me. Now, that's a very exclusive statement, especially for our modern 21st century ears to hear, because we're told every road leads to heaven. Every path, you just pick a path, find the one that works for you, whether that's Buddhism or Shintoism or Islam or Christianity, whatever it was, just be sincere, get on a path, find it, and you will get to heaven, because all roads lead to God. Jesus is explicitly clear here. He's saying, no, there is only one road that leads to the Father, one road that leads to life, one road that leads to truth, and it's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So friends, if you have sincere belief just about God in general, but you don't have sincere belief about Jesus exclusively, you're not on the way. But Jesus says, I'll show you the Father. I'll take you to the Father. It's through me. There is no restored, reconciled relationship with God that will bring us peace, truth, and joy outside of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is speaking about here is relational. He's not just a a guru dispensing spiritual wisdom or philosophies. He's not just a teacher describing a better life of flourishing and goodness. He is the only means to that flourishing and goodness because he takes us to himself. That goodness is in the presence of him and his father forever. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 1611. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Being in the presence of God is a delightful, joyous, beautiful pleasure to treasure forever. Jesus says, I'm... I'm going to prepare a place for you to reverse and undo all the brokenness and estrangement that sin has brought. Where we were exiled from God, we're exiled from that sweet, joyful fellowship and communion with him because of our sin. Now Jesus is the way, the only way for us back home to the Father. John describes this from the heavenly vision he had in Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, where he writes, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what it is to be in the presence of God. Delight, joy, pleasure forevermore as he 
communes with and has fellowship and closeness with him, uh, with us. Now, here's why this is good news for us. Jesus says, I'm departing, I'm going away, but your hearts don't need to be troubled. You don't need to be filled with anxiety, with disturbed hearts in this world, because what I'm going to do is going to bring you to the Father, bring you to him directly through me so that you have peace forevermore. This world is going to come and go. It's going to be no more. And the things that worry us and frustrate us about this temporal moment, there'll be nothing when we stand in the presence of God. So if you believe in Jesus, if your faith is in him, if your hope is anchored in him, that future day is coming when you are with the Father forever and he's pleased with you. There is no more sadness or sickness. So we can take a breath. Our hearts can be at peace because what Jesus is doing to bring us to the Father. That's the first way that Jesus focuses our faith. He says, I'm going to bring us to the Father. We need to believe that and trust that reality. Secondly, Jesus focuses our faith by calling us to believe that Jesus will show us the Father. Now here, Jesus moves from a promise of relationship that we will be in the presence of God in harmony and fellowship in communion and joy with him forever and ever. He moves from that promise to a promise of superior revelation. He says, I want you to see what I'm gonna see. I want you to see the Father. So he says in verse seven, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is speaking here about clarity. Their vision of who he is has becoming more and more clear. As, as Jesus has been with his disciples, their understanding has, has clicked a little bit more into focus, bit by bit by bit. If you take photography, you know sometimes that the camera, especially if you're taking a picture of something that's far away, the camera can be out of focus really quickly. And so you've got to turn the lens just right to, to bring the far off object into clear view. Jesus has been doing that by his life among them. But they haven't fully got it yet. There's still, there's still confusion. They, they stand just, just a little bit out of focus with who Jesus truly is. What hasn't clicked for them is that Jesus is the one who reveals or shows the Father. He states this at the very outset of his gospel. This is John chapter 1, verse 18. I'll read from the Christian Standard Bible translation. No one has ever seen God, John says. And that's consistent with the rest of the scriptures. No one has ever seen God. Yet the, only, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Jesus is saying the revelation is here. If you want to see God, you see God in Jesus because Jesus is God. So he says, from now on, you do know him, the Father, and have seen him, the Father, if you know me. Point is this, if you've Seen and know Jesus, you've seen and know the Father. Well, another question comes up here this time. Philip, in verse 8, says, Lord, show us the Father. He's still not, it's, things are still out of focus for Philip. He's, he's still not quite getting it. So he's like, well, show us the Father. Let us see him. It'll be enough for us. Let us have like this glorious vision moment, right? Let, let us be like Moses, and you just kind of stick us in the side of the rock, and then you walk, the Father just walks on by in all his radiant glory. Let's see the glory of God right now. That'll be enough for us. That'll end all our questions, all our discussion, all our interest. Jesus, he, he responds with a little disappointment. Guys, you're still not getting it? He, he says, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Here's the clear point. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Have you ever had that process of discovery with somebody that you've known for, for a very, very long time? Stephanie and I were talking about this last night. We still haven't figured out what it was, but we were talking at one point over the summer about each other, and Stephanie shared something about herself with me that I never knew. I, and I was just blown away. I was just so confused. How did I not know that thing? I've, I've known her for 19 years. We've been married for 17, and this was like an important fundamental. It was probably her favorite color or something like that. And I, I had no clue. Here, Jesus, it's yellow, by the way. Um, <clears throat> Here's Jesus. He's saying, guys, I've been with you for three and a half years. I, I've shown you myself. I, I've healed. I've done these miracles. I've taught. And you've, Peter's confessed you are the Christ, but you still don't get it that I am God? They don't, they don't comprehend that, that if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father? So he states, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Here he asks them to examine their faith, but he also provides insight to focus their faith. He asked the question, do you not believe, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is an essential question, by the way. Jesus is saying, do you not believe this? Implying that if you don't believe it, you're, you're not in Jesus. You're outside the Christian faith. This is essential for us to believe. This is what he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is speaking here of the close, intimate, personal relationship that he shares with the Father. And from that close personal relationship comes a unity of purpose, which follows in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now Jesus here is speaking of the mystery of the Trinity, that he is fully God, the Father is fully God, the Holy Spirit, who we'll speak about later in this chapter, fully God, and yet... Three distinct persons, one God, one essence. We don't fully comprehend the mystery of that reality of one God and three distinct persons, but Jesus is saying here, the Father and I share close intimacy. We are, the Father is in me and I am in the Father and the works that the Father does, they come from him through my word, which I receive from the Father and I say from the Father. The purposes of God are the same. As the Father and the Son are in intimate, close relationship, they are on the exact same page when it comes to the purposes of God in the world. So Jesus says, the words I say to you, I do not speak literally from myself, but the Father does his works through me. And again, Jesus commands us to believe at his word. So he says in verse 11, believe me, essential to our faith. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you don't get it from what he said, if you don't comprehend and you don't believe from, from the words that he has uttered, well, look at the proof that's found in what he has done. Examine the, the works that Jesus has done and make your decision based on that. Here's the proof. Jesus has done the things that only God can do. I would encourage you, just take some time if you want to, just, just read through John's gospel up to this point and ask yourself, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is doing things like healing, healing people that were born blind, giving them clear, 
2020 eyesight. Well, that's something that only God can do. Jesus is proclaiming forgiveness of sins, which again, it's only something God can do. Just a few chapters earlier in John's gospel, John chapter 11, Jesus goes and he speaks and he says, Lazarus, this friend of his who was dead and had been dead for four days, so not just really sick or kind of dead, all dead, in a grave. And he speaks and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus rises up and comes to life again. Again, something only that God can do, right? Jesus is doing the things that only God can do. And so if we have trouble comprehending what he says about who he is, look at what he's done and believe based on that evidence. If we're going to be honest with Jesus here and ourselves, we really only have a few categories to think about Jesus in. It's, it's C.S. Lewis's well-known trilemma. Jesus is either a liar because he claimed to be God. He said he is one with the Father. The Father is in him and he is the Father. And if that's not true, that's blasphemy. And he deserves death. So he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. He thinks and believes he's something he's not, saying he's doing these things but not doing them. And if he's a lunatic, we should discard him altogether. Or... Jesus is exactly who he said he is. He is the Lord. He's claimed to be God, and his works are the works of God. And so if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we should believe him. What Jesus is helping us with is to focus our faith to give us a clear view of who God is. If we see the Father because we know Jesus, then we see the God who is love because Jesus is love. We see the God who is faithful because Jesus is faithful. We see the God who keeps his promises and is fully trustworthy because Jesus has been fully trustworthy at every point. In Jesus, we see the God who is perfectly righteous and never uses or exploits anyone for his own advantage, but he is just and good. In Jesus, we see God who is forgiving and kind, who heals sinners and receives the lost. We see in Jesus God who has authority over all things, wind and waves, spirits and sickness, demons and death. He is the king over all the universe. So we can draw near and trust him. Or we can reject and run from him and live in our troubled hearts. The vision of John the writer of this gospel has, again, at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, tells us that all who believe in Christ will be welcomed into the Father's dwelling place, the new heavens and the new earth, and there they will see God. So John says, as he sees, he says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. Our hearts don't need to be troubled because for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus will bring us to the Father, and Jesus will show us the Father. No one has seen God, yet the only God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus focuses our faith by telling us, believe he will show us the Father. Your heart can be at peace, because you will one day see God. Everything will be made right. One more way Jesus focuses our faith is finally this, by telling us to believe Jesus will glorify the Father through us. Now here in these last three verses, Jesus moves to what it will practically mean for all of his disciples. 
He's been speaking spiritually and theologically here, but now he gets into the ground realities, the street-level work about what this means for you and I. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus says, I'm departing, I'm leaving, I'm going to the Father, but that's good for you, because you are going to do the works that I do, and even greater works than, you, than I've done will you do. Now, what does he mean by this? For the believer in Jesus, a greater power and reality falls on us. We are empowered to do the works that he does, even greater works, because he's giving us and has gifted us. We look back from here on the cross. He has gifted us the Holy Spirit. What are these works of Jesus? Well, remember the context here. If we ever take a verse out of context, we're going to mess it up. We're going to get it wrong. But if we, if we leave it there in the text and what it's saying, we'll be close and we'll, we'll probably get it right. Here's what Jesus has said. The works of Jesus has said this in verse 10. The works of Jesus are to do the works of the Father that come from the Father. So we ask the question, well, what are the Father's works? Jesus says that the words that he speaks in verse 10 are not from himself, but from the Father who does his works. So we have the Son speaking from the Father, but the words that the Son is speaking from the Father are doing something. They are effectual. They're active. They are, as Jesus says, the Father's works. So when Jesus says, you will do the works I do, Jesus is saying that his works are his words that bear fruit. They accomplish something from the Father. Here's what he means. His words, Jesus' words, could be summed up in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. It's what he proclaimed. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus was proclaiming Christ. He was proclaiming the time is at hand. Come and believe. Come and be saved. Come and believe the good news. The greater nature of the works is because of their fullness. So Jesus put it this way in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples and us today will glorify God by bearing witness to Jesus' resurrection all across the world to the ends of the earth. We will do that through the sharing and declaring of the gospel. We'll do that through the holy conduct of our lives as followers of Jesus who live honorably in the midst of the world so that, as what Peter says, the world may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These, these greater works are works of proclaiming the good news of Jesus, being faithful witnesses of Jesus, because he has gifted us the Holy Spirit as he has ascended to the Father. So as we proclaim Jesus is Lord and Savior, and we invite and we call all people to believe and to trust in him, the Holy Spirit works and he brings life and the gospel advances and a great, great multitude believe. Furthermore, Jesus says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now again, leave the text in its context here. Leave it there. Don't pull it out and make it say whatever you want to. He's saying that as we pray that God is glorified, as we pray that as we share his good news and live holy lives of, of beauty so that those may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, as we do that, as we pray he supplies us, he will answer that prayer. As you and I go before God and we say, Lord, help us, supply to us, 
You pray for your lost friends. You pray for those people you don't know. Lord, open their eyes. Help them see Jesus. Empower me to speak about you well and bear witness of you. As you pray those prayers, God is at work. He is working through us to magnify and to exalt himself. If our prayers are pointed to the glory of God, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, the glory of the Holy Spirit, if we're asking that he be glorified, he's going to do those things. Now, here's why that's important for us to keep from a troubled heart. We may wonder what it's all worth. Why stick it out? Why believe Jesus? Especially as the the temperature and the posture of our culture against Christians changes. As it gets more and more difficult to be a follower of Jesus in this world, how, how does this keep us from a troubled heart? Jesus is saying, because your labor won't be in vain. He's going to make it fruitful, profitable, God-glorifying work in and through us. Our faith won't be empty. Friends, here's a good promise for us that Jesus will accomplish in us and through us every good purpose he has designed to glorify his Father and himself. I mean, think of a massive, global multitude of human beings, of the human race, trusting and looking to Jesus as their only Savior because they heard the word of Christ and they believed and they turned from worshiping their idols, their false gods, worshiping money and power and pleasure, even worshiping themselves to worshiping the only true God. Isn't that a powerful movement? Isn't that an amazing vision? Even on the ugliest days, the worst days when the world is against us, God is getting glory through his people who believe and trust in him. And this can give us great peace. Even everything is turning against us. God's getting glory. He's going to bring us home. We can be at at peace with him. It was the Christian martyr Polycarp who, as he was threatened with being burned at the stake, was called to recant and reject Christ. The Roman government was saying, just refuse Christ. Just say, away with the Christians. You would think that Polycarp's heart would be very, very troubled in those moments. But he believed the better promises of Christ. He was at peace. One account stated, and I quote, that he was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was full of grace. And as they told him to recant, he proclaimed, 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And with that testimony, they tied him to the stake. They lit the fire and he was taken to God. He glorified God. Friends, let's believe Jesus. Let's let's hand, hand him our troubled hearts and with great confidence look to the realities that he has for us, that he will bring us home to the Father. He will show us the Father. And he is at work in great ways in us to glorify the Father. He is working everything for his glory and for our good. So let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. So that he is lifted up by our lives and seen in all the world. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.